Okay, Jesse, last week was a wild pram ride. You know I love a good vintage story. What's the story this week? When a beloved pillar of the community is found murdered in her luxury SUV, suspicion falls on her grieving husband, an upstanding citizen and Rotary Club president. Things turn out to be not what they seem at all when the community scion turns out to harbor a deranged double life. One with whips, chains, and sex slaves. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where even beloved communities can be dragged into the depths of dirty scandals. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Thanks to Owen this week for your great review. Uh, It definitely made us giggle. And we are so glad that we could reaffirm your life choices, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, Owen said that they are very glad to be single after listening to our show. And we applaud that. Okay, Jesse. speaking of reviews, quickly before uh, we start the show, we have a fun announcement this week, finally. Um, We are about to start rolling out merch. And to celebrate, we're going to be sending out stickers to anyone who reviews the show. And I think we also said that we were going to do it for people who already have as well if they want to submit their One hundred percent. Yes. Just screenshot your review or your existing review um, and DM it to us on Instagram or Facebook or send it to us at lovers at lovemurder.love with your mailing address and we will send over a sticker in time for the holidays. It'll be like a little Merry Bloody Christmas from Love Murder. And yeah, guys, this is just the beginning as well. Um, We're going to have a full merch store with a ton of cool designs for you. So we'll definitely make announcements in weeks to come, but you can always check out the website at lovemurder.love as well. Yeah, so we'll let you know as soon as the merch is up, but I'm so excited. Andy has been working so hard on it. We are very lucky because Andy works in fashion and she has a sense of retail because if it was up to me, you guys would get a bunch of Patagonia hoodies. (laughs) Branded Love Murder Patagonia. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, Andy's designs are awesome. So I'm really, really excited. So we should hopefully have an announcement about the merch store within the next week, actually. So we will be letting you know about that soon. I think that's all of the business before we can launch into the story, right? I think so. Great. Okay. So I'm really excited about this show, Andy. This is something very special we've never done before. And I honestly, I hope we do it more in the future because this is our first hometown listener case. That's really exciting. exciting. And it seems a little naughty too. It's very naughty. It's it's very surprising. So it's, you know, the usual level of 
depravity and mistrust and people that you should be protecting your hurting and a lot of that good stuff we usually see or bad stuff rather we see from love murder cases but there's a lot of elements in this that just when you think it can't get worse it does so yeah christina a was in high school in the town where this took place as it happened. And she sent us some amazing details that I've peppered throughout the show. And they weren't in some of my source material. So it, it was really like hometown insider information. So cool. Um, I want, it's, it's awesome. So I want to thank Christina. Big, big thanks to you. If anyone else has hometown stories, uh, please definitely send it to our email at lovers at lovemurder.love. And, you know, if you want to write me an intro to the story or any insider information, I would really appreciate it because it was very fun to work on this case. Also, you can follow Christina at Lazy Hipster Food on Instagram. She just started a really cool little food blog. And right now, I think there's only like three posts up, but I would definitely recommend following it because the recipes are amazing and it's super cute. Also, I feel like everyone, I mean, at least in LA, we're starting to go into lockdown again tomorrow. So everyone's cooking in. Yeah, absolutely. It's the perfect time to get your food recipes on. And she had a vegan crust, a vegan pizza crust, Andy. Yum. So something for everyone. Yeah, because I think she also had like bacon in another recipe. So really, it's for everybody. Cool. Hipsters aren't only just vegan, you know. (laughs) yes that's true you can be a carnivorous uh hipster i think it's coming back yeah (laughs) all the butchers you know yeah it's like edgy now to eat meat exactly (laughs) it's being alternative (laughs) all right it was a freezing icy cold morning in january of 2012 and frank leone was ending his midnight shift driving for hb land towing Just before 8 a.m., his company contracted with the Detroit police to pick up stolen or abandoned vehicles, which littered the streets of the northeast Detroit area he had been trolling. He was just rubbing his eyes when he spied a black Mercedes SUV in the still dark morning before the sun rose. Luxury vehicles weren't entirely uncommon in this area, often the result of theft or carjacking, but what was unusual was that it appeared wholly intact. Most expensive vehicles left abandoned were quickly stripped down to the studs. Frank wasn't allowed to tow vehicles without DPD approval, so he scraped off some ice to reveal the car's VIN number, scratched HB towing on the windshield and grease pencil to claim it, and called info into the local police precinct. Frank drove on to find more jobs and awaited the callback to pick up the vehicle. He didn't have to wait long, but it wasn't the callback he had expected. The abandoned vehicle officer had observed through the frosted windows what Frank had missed. A woman's dead body slumped in the back seat. The woman had been a pleasant-looking and clearly well-cared-for, middle-aged, and wearing yoga pants, sock feet, house slippers near her body. Not the usual corpse found in this area of Detroit, which boasted 38 homicides that January alone. The scene had been staged with pills, which first drove the investigators to consider an overdose. But on closer inspection, the pills were hormone medication prescribed to one Jane Bashara. Jane's purse, with checkbook and wallet still intact, were also still beside her, indicating this was in no way motivated by robbery. 
Who on earth could want this woman dead? Scant miles away in the Tony suburb of Gross Point, Michigan, only hours earlier, Bob Bashara called the public safety number to report his wife missing. A dispatcher sent an officer to the Bashara residence to take a report. As Bob hung up, the worried concern left his face. Later, he smiled when a text arrived. It read, Home, sir. The message wasn't from his wife. The message was from one of Bob's sex slaves. And all was going exactly to plan. Get ready to enter the topsy-turvy, twisty, dirty world of Bob Bashara, a BDSM master and murderer who wore a public mask as the president of the Rotary Club family man, country club member, and so-called mayor of Middlesex, as we once again tear down the charades that exist in upscale suburbs all around our country and find out what darkness truly lives in the hearts of men. God damn it, Bob giving BDSM a bad name. I know. You know, I kind of felt bad. I just want to recognize we'll get into the, the BDSM stuff later as it comes, but there's many healthy individuals out there practicing BDSM in healthy ways. Fucking hell. Come on. Yeah. He makes it look real bad too, Andy. Get yeah, ready. We, we should, there's definitely a disclaimer in this episode that this is not, <laughs> this is not this how is we not- feel about BDSM. <laughs> this is not what we associate with BDSM. This is just a unique case. This is a unique case with a particularly deranged individual. But, I mean, this could be said about all of our cases. Like, you know, I don't think we all thought badly of farmers just because the Copelands murdered five of their hired hands. Or senior (laughs) citizens. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. So let's talk about Jane. Jane is our victim and by all accounts a truly, truly wonderful human. Jane Engelbrecht Bashara was born June 22, 1955 in Mount Clemens, which is a nice middle-class community about 25 miles northeast of Detroit. She was the first of four kids, all named almost too cutely with J names, Jane, Janet, Julie, and John. And this is coming from a Jesse and John family. So and I can say that. And yes, and our kids' names are going to have A names. So <laughs> so I definitely, like when I say that, it's because I'm I'm one of these people. Yeah, I'm not. No. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, four kids all with J names. I mean, that's like, we're talking about some, uh, who's that? The Duggar family stuff right there. Yeah. I feel like when you have two and it's the same, it's not a big deal. But the three, it's like definitely intentional. That's when it like turns... Mm-hmm. Into yeah, and by four, I mean, you are just setting up a family band. Yeah. So Jane was a bright and popular student. She attended Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, earning a 4.0 GPA in business administration and joining the Alpha Sigma Tau sorority. Her classmates remember her as a passionate and dedicated student. One said, whatever she did, she embraced fully. Whatever she put her heart in, she put her full heart in. So Jane graduated in 1977 with a BA in business and immediately got a job with Detroit Edison, which was the region's largest utility company at the time. So always a forward thinker and expert planner, Jane started a 401k right out of college. 
She ended up also buying a house very young, and she enrolled in the University of Detroit for an MBA. It took her about six years to achieve the MBA, attending night classes while she worked a really demanding full-time job, but Jane always accomplished what she set her mind to. By 1983, she had a crusher job that she was had already been promoted, 401k, owned her own house, and had an MBA. She was only 28 years old. Jesus. I know. That's some serious high achieving right yeah. there. <laughs> Unfortunately for Jane, 1983 was also the year she set her eyes on a tall, husky, dark-haired man named Bob Bashara at a party who introduced himself as a restaurateur from Gross Point. So he is going to be the villain in this story if we haven't made that abundantly clear already. I think we might have checked that <laughs> box. <laughs> Get out your pitchforks. We hate Bob. Bob's family history is a great American immigrant story with generations of hardworking achievers until Bob, of course. From The Sadist and the Hitman, oh, which is a perfect time for you for me to tell you, other than Christina's firsthand account, which was fantastic, um, I got the rest of my source material from a great book called The Sadist, the Hitman, and the Murder of Jane Bashara. It's by a husband and wife uh, journalism team called George Hunter and Lynn Rosenthal. So thanks, George and Lynn. This was a fantastic book. They clearly put a lot of research into it. And they're also local to the area. So they have a lot of, of the local color as well. The cover looks like very Soprano. I would describe Bob Bashara as if a sack full of mashed potatoes took the form of James Gandolfini and Harvey Weinstein and came to life. That is what he looks like. Ooh. <laughs> When I read that to Nathaniel, he was like, no one can look that lumpy and gross. And then I showed him the picture. So definitely go to our Instagram and I will be completely redeemed in that description. I think I want to just put – I mean, I don't know how I could put a sack of mashed potatoes. I don't think that's that. <laughs> but I could definitely put a sack of potatoes up. So No, because it's, you know, a normal potatoes are just like still kind of firm. It has to be really oozy and lumpy. <laughs> anyway, though, it didn't start that way for the Bashara family. In fact, they, like I was saying, they had this great immigrant story and just generations of excellence. And this was the story about uh, his great-grandfather, which was a pretty crazy story, so I wanted to share it with you guys. This is from the book. On Christmas Eve 1901, Syrian immigrant George Bashara, his wife, and their baby, George II, were asleep inside their Hartford City, Indiana apartment when their entire block went up in flames. The elder George made a desperate effort to save $100 in money, which was in another room, their life savings. Oh, my God. But he had to give it up and then jump from the second-story window, reported the December 25th edition of the Indianapolis News. He had his wife, who was almost suffocated, throw the baby to him. From the second story. He caught it, but it may still die. Mrs. Bashara then had to jump to save her life. She was scantily clad and stood in the snow in her bare feet. That was from the 1901 newspaper. Oh, my God. So traumatic. Well, the baby didn't die. So good news. 
George II would go on to become a prominent attorney and sire George III, whose accomplishments would eclipse his father's. George III would break the string and name his firstborn son Robert, who would break the string and bring disgrace, not honor, to the Bashara name. Bob's family tree cast a long shadow, and if he benefited from the privilege his forebears' success afforded, he didn't measure up to the high standards they set. So maybe the trauma just trickled down. <laughs> yeah, it, it just landed on Bob. <laughs> So George II, Bob's grandfather, who was the first Bashara born in the United States, graduated from Michigan Law School at only 20 years old and set up his own private practice by 22. He was one of the first attorneys of Middle Eastern descent in the metro Detroit area and eventually settled in the village of Gross Point Park, which is a 3.7 square mile upscale community, which in 1930 had roughly 11,000 residents, roughly the same today. So George III, who is Bob's dad, even outdid his father, getting his law degree and partnering with George Sr. at Bashara and Bashara. And at the age of 38, he became the youngest judge in state history to serve on the Michigan Court of Appeals. So this is a very high-powered family. Yeah. He also served as president of the Detroit College of Law and the president of the prestigious Lockmore Country Club in Gross Point Woods, as well as sitting on the board of trustees for Wayne State University, St. John Hospital, and the Gross Point Shores Planning Commission. So these were some extremely large shoes to fill. And to be clear, the Basharas were a super big deal in Gross Point based on all of the community service and the committees that George III spearheaded and sat on. He volunteered for and donated to the Big Brothers and Big Sisters, March of Dimes, Boys Club, and was a chancellor at St. Michael's Episcopal Church. He even upped the ante when he married Nancy Brinker, a woman of impeccable Gross Point stock. Her father had made a fortune with the Gross Point Research Corporation. So that was Bob's mother. Bob was basically born into Gross Point royalty. Unreal. Yeah. He had every privilege known to man. To explain a little bit more about the community, our hometown hero, Christina, wrote about Gross Point and Bob's family. So she said, there are five points, the woods, shores, city, park, and farms. The entire community is pretty well off, but there are definitely richer points than others. Overall, the richest live in the farms, park, and shores. Bob lived in the old money area just to set the vibe over there. All of the points are connected, even though they each have their own city halls, fire stations, police stations, etc. This in turn makes the population of 43,000 people split up into five small towns, meaning everyone knows everything that's going on at all times. You know the liquor store owner, you know who has the big house on the corner, your friend's mom's aunt is your neighbor. Christina also had glowing things to say about Nancy Brinker Bashara, Bob's mother. She wrote, I did theater with her at Gross Point, and she is an absolutely lovely woman. She always worked behind the scenes, doing props or painting sets. From what I know, although she never really talked about it, Bob's dad was a very prominent judge, but was a real piece of shit to her. Like, really, really bad abuse. Shit. Well, that makes sense then why Bob would, because he probably saw mm-hmm. that. Exactly. She goes on to say she didn't deserve that at all. I mean, nobody does. No. She is hard of hearing, and sometimes things need to be repeated to her. My aunt is actually really good friends with her and in a lot of Facebook pictures with her. 
Well, thanks, Christina. So we're going to go into Bob's BDSM habits at length later, but he treated his submissives really badly, like went over the line with what he was physically supposed to be doing and not respecting boundaries. And I wonder if that has something to do with how his father treated his mother. For sure. I think yeah. like I think there's some people who just enjoy BDSM and like the different aspects of it, but then I think there's people that like it's literally a direct result of, you know, experiences in their life so far and mirroring what they see at home. Yeah, and I think he also could not fulfill what his father had done, at least in his career. And his father was a very successful, very domineering man. Mm-hmm. And this might have been his way of exerting dominance. Because as you'll see, as it, as the story unfolds, he was um, financially and career-wise just a disaster. Okay. So in any case, sweet Nancy gave birth to Bob on December 12th, 1957. He was an unexceptional student and was described by some as a troublemaker. One of his friends from school said he seemed to be in and out of trouble all the time and he had to get his dad to bail him out. But Bob had a lot of charm, so he was able to get out of trouble himself. Bob claimed he was introduced to kinky sex before he hit puberty when he and his school pal discovered a bondage magazine. So this is where we also get into his privilege. At my house, we had a third floor maid's room with a large room and bathroom, Bob wrote in a letter sent to a friend from jail after his arrest. One time we were up there, I found a magazine about rope bondage. Bill, a school friend, and I read the magazine often. I found some clothesline and we stripped to our underwear. He laid on the bench and I bound him tight. We did that for about an hour and we laughed about our newfound adventure. I enjoyed binding him and wanted to do that to girls I knew. We did this only once more and from that point on drifted apart as friends. So yeah, he was into this from a very early age. Yeah. Bob eventually attended Albion College where he took economics and management and wooed another Gross Point native named Priscilla Langs, whose father was a well-respected attorney. The two married in July of 1981. Bob was 23 and his bride only 21. Not much is known of this first marriage other than the fact that it didn't last. Bob and Priscilla were divorced the following year. In 1983, George bankrolled his son's dreams of becoming a restaurateur and opened the Wooden Nickel Eatery in Gross Point Woods. It gave him just enough bragging rights to woo the pretty blonde Jane Engelbrecht. The two young go-getters clicked right away and were married less than two years after their first meeting on April 26, 1985. The next few years were great for the Basharas. Jane rose up the ranks at Detroit Edison, ultimately ending up as the director of strategic market planning. And Bob expanded his real estate holdings using his parents' money, of course. (laughs) Also took a side job selling industrial cleaning products, but considered himself some sort of real estate baron. He told a friend, when you play the game of Monopoly, the person with the most property wins. Dude, it's a board game. (laughs) It's not a life motto. It is for him, Jesse. <laughs> the couple had their first child, Robert Jr., in 1988 and upgraded their home in 1989 when they bought a beautiful 3,000-square-foot, five-bedroom colonial on Middlesex Road in Gross Point Park. 
fun fact, Middlesex Boulevard would later be the setting of the 2002 Pulitzer Prize winning novel Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, which I highly recommend. It's an awesome novel. It was there that Bob would truly cement his neighborhood status as the self-proclaimed mayor of Middlesex. Oh, God. Where, uh-huh. He's, he thinks he's a big man, this guy. Where he would organize annual block parties during which he'd set up his grill and barbecue for the whole neighborhood or, as some would point out, make others do all the work while he walked around shaking hands. Ew. Mm-hmm. Just the more we get into this guy, the more you're just going to think oozy mashed potatoes. <laughs> I might think worse things than oozy mashed potatoes. I think so. Feel free to pitch them in. In 1992, Jane gave birth to a daughter, Jessica, and it seemed like all was going exactly to plan for the popular and upwardly mobile Basharas. As the kids grew up, their parents were deeply involved with their school organizations and greater community. Jane was the president of the Mother's Club at their school, which raised money for scholarships and classroom expenses. One of her colleagues said, They get a lot done at the Mother's Club. Jane was great as president. To be effective in that role, you have to be organized and to be able to motivate people. That was Jane. She was extremely well-liked. She always had time for other people. You liked volunteering because she was part of it. Meanwhile, Bob was building his image as a gross point big shot, tooling around town in a Lincoln Navigator with the vanity license plate that trumpeted the status Big Bob and sipping from a coffee mug bearing the message, you're the man, Bob. This guy is for real. You've got to be kidding me. No, this is very real. Jane's great aunt, Barbara, recalled Bob did a good job keeping up appearances. The pictures you see of him on the golf course where he's smiling and happy, that's how he appeared to us. He was Big Bob, the guy who raised money for charity. But away from the fundraisers, school events, and Rotary Club dinners, the mayor of Middlesex was headed toward a darker path. Bob and his gregarious rich guy act had many fooled, but not everyone. The higher the social order or money, the more you found people who supported him, Gross Point News reporter Kathy Ryan said. The common folks all thought he was a scumbag, however. Bob was nowhere near as wealthy as he pretended to be. He referred to his real estate holdings as his empire, but those closest to him knew otherwise. Jane had to co-sign most of his properties because his credit was trashed and his real estate holdings were barely breaking even. Jane was the breadwinner, Patricia Matthews commented. She covered all the insurances and healthcare, all of that. Stop. Mm-hmm. Gross. So gross. So Bob hid how truly bad the finances were from Jane, resulting in the family owing thousands of dollars in back taxes and having to refinance their home several times. Yeah, I don't know why she wasn't dealing with that. I think that his reputation and the way he presented himself was like this big man who had everything in control and she wanted to be in a traditional marriage and let him be the boss in some way and it was just a nightmare. It was just a disaster because he obviously couldn't keep his head above financial waters. Two of the mortgages so and the financing – it's so it's so bad. We're in his name only, so she didn't even know about the times that he was refinancing their home. So bad. So bad. So Bob's mother loaned or gave him hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout the years to bail him out because 
she had inherited the money from George, but also her father had been wildly wealthy as well. So she was like kind of an heiress and Bob just used her and begged for money constantly too. Like he was literally just taking money from the two women in his life. Gross. Okay. It's going to get grosser. So much, much worse than Bob's ineptitude and financial infidelity was a 1995 allegation that Bob molested a five-year-old relative, reportedly Jane's niece. Uh, Uh, Yeah. That's not a red flag. That's an ocean of red flags on fire with the smoke spelling out the words pedophile scumbag. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. According to Hunter and Rosenthal, the girl told Gross Point Park police – Bob had made her touch and kiss his penis, and they played the jumping game in which Bob would touch her inappropriately. He also allegedly spanked the girl. She told police when she protested being punished, her Uncle Bob pressured her to admit she secretly enjoyed it. Oh, don't say Uncle Bob. That makes me think of your Uncle Bob. I have two Uncle Bobs, and they're both lovely. Yeah, let's call him like Creeper Bob. Yeah, we'll call him Creeper Bob because I have amazing Uncle Bobs. The The one that's passed is the one that um, came up with the dummy up line that I use all the time. Yeah. So RIP good Uncle Bob. Yeah, Creeper Bob for real. And also just like he's giving BDSM a bad name, he's giving Uncle Bobs around the globe a bad name too. Yeah, that's like two for two. That's really embarrassing. Two for two, Bob. So investigators, including future Park Police Chief David Hiller, interviewed Bob about the allegation. Bob has repeatedly to this day insisted he didn't do anything inappropriate with a child. We wrestled on our bed on a number of occasions, Bob recalled during a court hearing. He said he also passed a polygraph. It wasn't a jumping game. It was like a king of the hill. I would get on the bed and put a cover over me and the kids would jump on me and attack me and I would throw them off the bed in a nice way. We put pillows on the outside so when they fell, they didn't just fall on the floor. My daughter, my son, and the relative did this while Jane and her sister Janet were downstairs drinking and smoking pot. He said this after the murder allegation, so I don't know how much he's just trying to, like, throw Jane under the bus, like, by saying she was smoking pot, you know? Yeah. When asked about the girl's claims she'd seen Bob naked, he explained, several times the kids walked in on me while I was changing and I was naked. Why are you naked so much when children are in your home? Good. That's like the lamest excuse I've ever heard. The lamest. I barely see Nathaniel naked and he's my husband. (laughs) He changes fast. That's like literally like I just so happened to like whip my dick out in front of a school. Yeah. It's it's like these are not – like these are things – like and also why are you – are you like undressed under the covers in bed and while the kids are jumping on it? Because you'd say, hey, kids, I'm not dressed. Get out of my room so I can get dressed. You don't like just like let them jump on the bed with you. That's disgusting. No. He's obviously a fucking creeper. Mm Mm-hmm. So Bob didn't end up being charged. I don't know if it's because he passed the polygraph or they just decided to drop the charges. But of course – Nobody ever believes kids, and this uh-uh. always happens all of the time. Well, and so, if he's uh, the mayor of Middlesex. Like, he probably exactly. has some sort of 
I'm sure that's exactly what happened. So obviously this caused a lot of problems with Jane's family. Jane told her friend, Joy, that she'd stopped talking to her sister, Janet. She saw the relationship I had with my sister, and she said she also had a sister who she used to be very close to. Unfortunately, they no longer spoke. When I asked Jane why, she said it was because Bob wasn't clean. Which is a weird thing to say. Yeah, clean in what way? I mean, if you know that he's being dirty to five-year-olds, you I mean, like, and this is no way meaning to shame Jane. I think she was in a tough situation, but like, God, get out. If there's even, where there's smoke, there's fire when it comes to five-year-olds talking about how your husband made them kiss and touch their penis. Oh, God. But you know what? Good on Janet for being like, we're never going to see you again. Sorry. Like, that's a good mom. You know, I'm sure it hurt her to not talk to her sister, but like she made the right choice, you know? Yeah. I think once you have your kids, it's like the sister can be easily removed. Oh, for sure. 100%. So good on Janet. So paling in comparison to that – Bob was also a slumlord. He was sued several times for not returning tenants' security deposits, and when they would try to get them back, he would counter-sue them for back rent that they didn't even owe. Sounds right. Mm-hmm. Many of his tenants described him as a scumbag or skeezy. Christina's uncle actually lived in one of his slummy apartments when he was only 20 and just back from the army. He said, ready for your skin to crawl? I don't know. It's like already crawling. problem. Cockroaches. The cockroach problem was so bad, he used to sit on the floor and shoot them with a BB gun as they climbed out of the walls. <laughs> Who? Christina's uncle or Bob? Christina's uncle. Yeah. So Christina's oh. uncle stayed. He was like a young guy. He was 20 and he was back from the military and he just got this cheap apartment that was owned by Bob. And he said that it was disgusting. And when he complained, of course, Bob didn't do anything about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Bob's money troubles grew until he was sued by his high school's reunion committee for stealing $3,000. That's so low. Was that supposed to be for, like, punch? It was, like, supposed to be to, like, throw a reunion. And he was on the committee and he stole the money. That, and Wow. Yep, and the Lockmore Country Club kicked him out for unpaid dues and bounced checks. That had to hurt because his father had been the president of that club, and I can imagine it was really hard for the country club to, like, kick him out permanently because he had such a legacy. Yep. I also guess because of his legacy, they had looked the other way several times when he had gotten in trouble for snorting cocaine at the club. in trouble just go in a stall dude like what <laughs> i don't know why. just like in the fucking sauna just ripping lines doing it off his golf club fucking loser such a loser so it was during this stormy time in his life that bob came across an ad for a bdsm website while online gambling 
and finally discovered a fantasy place where he could truly be in charge, not just as Big Bob, but as Master Bob. Okay, so, you know, I'm sure you guys all know what BDSM is. It stands for Bondage and Discipline, Dominance and Submission, Sadism and Masochism. It has been famously popularized by Fifty Shades of Grey. And it can be related to sexual activities. That's usually what it is for most people. But it also can be like a day-to-day way of living your life in like kind of a dominant submission type thing. For Bob, it was certainly sexual. And he wanted it to be also a full-on lifestyle choice. He told many people that Jane was no longer interested in sex because she was going through, you know, menopause. And he also suffered from erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So he's So he said that that part of their marriage was effectively over. According to Bob, now this is according to Bob, Jane gave him permission to seek out other arrangements as long as he was discreet and didn't, quote, embarrass her or the family. Jane's close friends and family strongly dispute this claim. Her mother said vehemently, that is a lie. There was never any open marriage. She wouldn't agree, she wouldn't agree to that in a million years. I think it's pretty safe to say if the person who is claiming that finds is found dead, uh, that <laughs> yeah. it probably wasn't the case. I think if she came up after and was like, we totally had this arrangement. I'm alive and well. This is, you know, I didn't want to fuck him anymore. <laughs> I believe her. But when she's found dead in the backseat of a, of an SUV, I don't think that that's – Yes. And also later on, one of his friends goes on to say, it took me a long time to realize this, but basically whenever Bob's lips were moving, he was lying. Ooh. He was just lying all the time. Yeah. Gross. So Detroit apparently has a thriving BDSM scene, which I think is probably true in most major American cities. And European cities and cities worldwide. And Bob hit the scene hard in 2006 with his newly internet-acquired slave, Vanita. Vanita was also married with children, but her finances were in trouble. She said later of her relationship with Bob, he was looking for someone to be his submissive and I needed food and shoes for my children. As Bob built a relationship with Vinita, he also sought to elevate his status in the BDSM scene by building a sex dungeon in the basement of one of the buildings he owned, which was underneath a couple of operating bars. So Vinita <laughs> helped him set up Bob's dungeon. God, that sounds like and- a nightmare with the cockroaches and shit. Oh, this sounds really gross. Like, that's not like a chic-ass dungeon that like is fun. That's like a scary actual dungeon. Yeah, you're not in Berlin here. You're no. in a Detroit bar basement. <laughs> With not roaches. Sexy. Gross. Yeah. So Vanita helped set up Bob's dungeon, and she would clean it up after parties in exchange for crashing for free, which is so tough. Vanita was just in a bad financial situation, so she was literally – his BDSM submissive, and his, like, actual, like, cleaning lady sex slave. Ugh. Yeah. So, Vanita and Bob's relationship began to show cracks after about a year and finally petered out after a year and a half. Bob had been choking Vanita violently, causing her to lose consciousness, which wasn't part of their deal. They weren't supposed to be doing, like, heavy breath play. Okay. He was, she was, like, tapping him out and he wasn't stopping. I was going to say, do they have any, like, safe words or anything? Yeah, she made it sound like she was using them and he was, like, rolling over her. Ew. Yeah. Furthermore. 
Run. Yeah. So furthermore, she had been looking for – oh, well – so, like, even later on, like, there's a lot about BDSM during the trial. I didn't keep it all in because we're talking about it now. But a lot of people were like, the whole point is the submissive is actually supposed to be in control. Like, the submissive is supposed to be the one who's, like, Calls applying them. the green light, the red light, you know, and, like, calling when to push and when to pull back. And he was not letting that happen. Well, yeah, because it's supposed to be, like, a trusting dynamic. So if you're not – yeah, that's so disgusting. Yeah, it goes against all the rules. So furthermore, she had been looking for a semi-monogamous master and slave relationship and Bob was seeing tons of women behind her back. She described the evening that broke the camel's back as one that he had promised to have a normal date with her just as a woman and man, not as a master and slave. And instead, Bob stood her up for hours and then instructed her to come meet him at the dungeon. When she arrived, he introduced her to a matronly blonde named Rachel and suggested a threesome. So she was appalled. And this is what she said about that night. I became enraged when Bob suggested a threesome. I went absolutely crazy. It was not something I was going to tolerate. It was not something I'd put up with. I was set up for a different kind of evening. I could not believe he was doing this to me. The phrase he always said was, you and me against the world. This was not you and me against the world. They blew me off. They went into the room and they closed the door. And I didn't leave because I was upset. I stayed in the outside room for a couple of hours until they were done. Oh, my God. Why is she doing that to herself? Well, she didn't have anywhere else to go. Remember, she was living in the dungeon. Oh, my God. And then when they were done, I went crazy on them again. He stood over me with a look on his face. I don't think I would have recognized him if I didn't know him, Benita continued. I have never in my life begged anybody like that. I humiliated myself by begging for him not to do this to me. While he and Rachel stood there, Bob with his arms crossed. He kicked me out. He stole my key while he was helping me unlock. He stole things I had and wanted back as I was cleaning everything out I owned in anger. I told him I felt like I was having some kind of heart attack. And I asked him if I could please at least stay the night. I had nowhere to go. And he kicked me out. And Rachel reached over and she put his hand on his arm. And she told him not to be so mean to me. And he kicked me out at 2 or 3 in the morning. Since Vanita didn't want a three-way, Master Bob was finished with her. Rachel Gillette was his new slave. He would try to convince her to welcome another submissive woman into their life. Wow. Yeah. All the while, he's playing big man in the community and is married to, by all accounts, a wonderful, amazing woman who's totally the breadwinner and taking care of their whole family. Uh, Yep. So Rachel was a single mother. She was a few years younger than Bob, and she met him on Alt.com in 2008. Her kids were grown out of the house, and she was looking for a new man and some excitement in her life. She said she was, like, less into the painful sex, like, which Bob was into, and more into she liked the idea of a dominant man, and she wanted somebody who would, like, tell her what to do with her day and, like, she would have to report to. Like, that was the part that interested her. And I think she should have gotten out right away with Bob because it was clear that his was mostly about fulfilling his sexual desires. Yeah, she would have been – she would have been great in Nexium in that, like, organization, I feel like. Because that was yes. all about, like, he would send them <laughs> what to eat and what to do and where to go and what yes, to Yeah, like, she, like, she would have been a great – she would have been great in a cult. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, so it was not exactly a fit right from the beginning, but they had really good chemistry and they really hit it off right away. However, Rachel discovered also very early on that Bob was lying to her. His online profile had described him as divorced and an easy Google search showed her that he was definitely still married. So she accepted his excuse that he was separated but still living together as they untangled finances and prepared for divorce. How many men have told that to women? Oh, my God. It's literally like happens every day. Every day. It's the oldest lie in the book. Well, I'm not technically divorced. We're just separated while we figure out – you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to tell the kids. Yeah, the thing that's like fucked up though too is if you're like a girl and you're already kind of intimate with the guy, you already are starting to feel that connection. And so it's like a lot harder if a guy then is lying to you to be like, fuck you. Um, you yeah, and I like, think this is this is what you want to believe. She wants yeah. to believe that he's getting divorced. She wants to believe they're going to be together. So Bob's lies were also becoming apparent to his family as well because – On two occasions, Jessica caught her father being a disgusting pig. The first was when she discovered him watching BDSM porn on the family computer. Ah! Don't do that on the family computer, yo. Dude, what is wrong with you? The desktop in the family study. It's like the Dell. Yes, exactly. That's like what it was exactly. And it's just, it gets even grosser because when she caught him, instead of just being like, I'm sorry, that was disgusting. He was like, well, you know, your mom and I are getting older and I have erectile dysfunction and I wanted to see if it's like my fault or your mom's fault. That's what he told his daughter. It's like, I don't need to know how your dick works, dad. No, No, but also like, I don't need to like see you doing that ever. No, or have you blamed my mom for your dick issues? Oh my God. And bad dick decisions. Also, is he getting it up with these girls, like with Vanity and Rachel? No, no. You'll see. You'll see what's going on there. Yes. It becomes a topic of conversation. Okay. Like a lot of conversation in the courtroom. So they can't be like – it must just be the power dynamic that it can't be like the sex that's getting them off. So he would wear strap-ons, A. (laughs) Andy's face is just wild. Um, and also, I think he still made women perform oral sex on him, but it was just loosey goosey. Yeah, it was just flopping because uh, he said he could still achieve orgasm. He just couldn't get hard. So he would still come, but he didn't yeah. get hard. It would just, I guess, spurt out of the softy at some point. The like lumpy, the, worst, lumpy potato. the worst soft serve you've ever had. Oh, my God. This is so – we need, like, a trigger warning on this oh, whole I, I need alcohol so bad. <laughs> I know. This is – I told you this, is, this episode's a doozy. Um, wow. Yeah, I didn't mean to get into it that early, but you asked the right question. So that's what he was doing with these women. Okay. And I mean, like, so if he's got, like, a huge-ass strap on, I mean, these ladies are probably like, fuck yeah. But, I mean, sucking a, like, a floppy, sad, floppy dick is just not. Speaking, speaking of sad floppy dicks, the next thing that Jessica caught him on 
was that she saw a text on his phone that he sent to a woman named Rose that read, get on your knees and give me head, bitch. Why? Wait, she found it on his phone? Yeah, so she knew he sent it. So I don't know if Jessica was on his phone or how she caught it because it wasn't like it came in. Okay. It was one she saw that he sent. But I think also she was a teenager and she was deeply suspicious of her father, you know? Yeah, that's like so fucked up to discover any and all of that shit when you're a teen and you're like trying to figure out your sexuality and like. Ugh, I would like join a nunnery if that was my father and I found this out. I'd be like, no way. Never having sex ever. Never. Thank you. This is officially how you can get your children to stay virgins till they die. (laughs) Oh, God. So Rachel and Bob's relationship progressed to the point where he moved her in rent-free to one of his apartments about a year into dating. I hope it wasn't one of the cockroachy ones. Though Rachel had email evidence that Bob promised her that they would buy a house together and eventually they'd be officially together after Jessica went to college, Bob apparently thought differently of the arrangement. He said later on, In my mind, it wasn't an affair. The absolute basis of that relationship was as a master and slave, and anytime we went anywhere, we were interacting in that regard. But it's it's not true because there's email evidence that he's like, you're the only one for me. I love you. We're going to be together. Yeah. You know? He's not being a very good master. No. He's not a good anything. He's not a good father. He's not a good businessman. He's not a good husband. Definitely not a good husband. And he's not a good master. He's just – he's shit at fucking everything. This guy is definitely the most pathetic and the most disgusting person we've ever covered. I feel like he could be brothers with father of the year. Yes, exactly. They kind of look alike too. Really? Yeah. I think that guy was at least good at like – scamming business out of people though like cleaning those discs and stuff getting a bunch of people to do some work at least he made some money this guy's just good at wearing strap-on dicks (laughs) that's that's all he's got going (sighs) so even as rachel suffered the indignities of being with a man who routinely lied to her and forced his soft dick into her mouth And never kept up his end of the bargain. She remained his best girl, attending BDSM and swingers parties with him, even posting online to help find an additional female for a polyamorous home in which Bob would be the master over a harem of slaves. So this is what the ad read that Rachel posted. Um, We are looking for a special girl, a third to round out our relationship. Someone who would live with us on a full-time, permanent basis who is free to commit to being part of a loving, nurturing, male-dominated home. Master Bob is the head of our relationship. Must be able to relocate to us, willing to obey his directions concerning finances, health issues, and self-growth. Gainfully employed. Of course gainfully employed because he can't make money. So Rachel claimed that she didn't want to share Bob, but agreed to it after a woman in the BDSM scene told her that Bob had been flirting with her online. I actually kind of thought maybe this would help him to stay more faithful. He assured me if we brought another person into the relationship, it would be enough. He would stop chatting with other women. Guys, we've said it again and again. Babies and threesomes. Don't save your relationship. Nope. Yikes. So... 
He refused to consider living anywhere else but Gross Point because, you know, he had that reputation there and he had, you know, it was multiple generations at this point. And so he began to actually engage realtor friends to find a house for he and Rachel and ostensibly this third slave woman. It was 2010 now and Jessica had left to attend University of Michigan. Rachel was putting serious pressure on Bob to put these plans that they had been talking about for over two years into action. And Bob was starting to float murderous thoughts to his BDSM friends. He told one friend regarding a divorce from Jane, it'd be a lot cheaper to kill the bitch. Oh, my God. Just get divorced. I I can see, like, how this fucking jabroni doesn't want to get divorced, though. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Well, I'm about to get into their finances. Like, he, he would be screwed. Jane would be screwed. Um, Jane was absolutely beside herself by this point. She was aware of most of Bob's financial misdeeds, and she had found a bag of Bob's BDSM accoutrement and strap-on toys. How dumb are you? <laughs> to leave that, that out where your wife would find it? I'm yeah, sorry, that also just proves the point that she did not approve of this. No, because she wouldn't care if she no. did approve of She'd this. be like, oh, yeah. there's this kinky shit. Yeah, glad I don't have to participate in that, you know, but she was upset and she told a friend she was really upset about it too and they went to couples counseling about it. So obviously she didn't know when she was not into this. Such a fucking liar. Yeah, so Jane wanted out, but she was worried about the financial ramifications. According to Hunter and Rosenthal in the book… Um, she told her daughter that the marriage was rocky and discussed the financial ramifications of the divorce. In the event of a divorce, ideally, she just hoped she'd be able to take her 401k. Jane's 401k was worth about $800,000. Yeah, she started it like the day she got out of school. Mm-hmm. She wanted to make a clean break and get her name off of all of my father's rental properties. She was scared that her 401k would be taken because of the debt on his rentals. Jane had expressed concern to friends that Bob's floundering business ventures were ruining her credit. Bob's mother, Nancy, stepped in to help. She said, I knew that there was a problem because Jane couldn't get a credit card because she was signed on a lot of Bob's property. So this woman, Jane was making like $96,000 a year. She can't get a credit card because of her husband. Wow. Mm-hmm. Even though she was earning a lot of money, her credit was not good. I let them have my credit card, and whenever I got my bill, I would take it over to their house, and Jane would check off what was hers, and right then and there, she'd write me a check. That is so embarrassing to have to do to use your mother-in-law's credit card because your husband's such a joke. No, it's really bad. Jessica said her mom eventually was able to get her own credit card again. There were issues with my mom's credit card being canceled, but she was able to get a new card. It was because she co-signed on the rentals, and so her credit was linked to my father's. While a divorce would have hit Jane in the pocketbook, Bob surely would have suffered greater hardship. He was in a precarious financial position, owing nearly $20,000 in back taxes on the hard luck property. That was like one of the bar areas. The house on Middlesex was mortgaged to the hilt. Jane's name was on all of the rentals, which were barely breaking even. Including the dungeon? Including the dungeon ones. Bob's income from his salesman job at United Laboratories was $21,800 in 2010. Jane made $96,000 plus bonuses. The following year, mm -hmm, my God. Following year, Bob's earnings fell to only $18,000 for the entire year. 
Well, Jane, again, earned over 90,000 plus bonuses. Bob couldn't buy a house in the points and support his two slave women on that salary. So Bob often turned to his mother, like I said, but at this point she was kind of over helping him because she had given him in just two years, just from 2010 to 2012, she'd already given him $325,000 in loans. You've got to be kidding me. In two years, he burned through $325,000 that were supposed to be loans from his mother, and he never paid her back, obviously. So she was finally, like, running out of money. I mean, she wasn't destitute or anything, but she was like, I can't give you any more money. And she didn't know where where it was going because he just kept losing it, you know? I know, but that's why, like, you can't just, like, willy-nilly give people that much money. No, and that's – I mean, she was very generous. In addition to – That's enabling. Job, yeah, but lo- listen to this. She also gave a $10,000 gift – every Christmas to eight relatives, Jane, Bob, and their two children, and Bob's sister, Laura, and her husband and two kids. So she's giving out like 140 grand every Christmas. That's crazy. I don't know. I could use a little Nancy in my life. (laughs) I know. That's like not good and and not healthy and not what? She's just way too giving of a woman, which is exactly what Christina said. She was always overly generous, very sweet, very giving. If she had anything, she'd give you the shirt off her back. But yeah, it's kind of interesting that he is trying to be this big man with these submissive women and it's only the women in his life that are keeping him afloat. That's – I mean, but like I guess that's so crushing to a man's ego that probably is – was a huge problem for him. Oh, for sure. He had a huge ego. And then later on, somebody says that when his dick stopped working, that also like kind of revved up the BDSM stuff because he needed to assert some dominance that he had lost, you know? Yeah. By 2011, Rachel was tiring of the BDSM scene and she was desperate for a more traditional relationship, but Bob wouldn't hear of it. She said the mayor of Middlesex wanted to become the mayor of kinky sex. Oof. So she told this terrible story to uh, Hunter and Rosenthal, the authors of this book, where Bob forced her into a threesome in his marital bed while Jane was out of town. Okay. So she agreed to the threesome, but she was really uncomfortable being in his house knowing that Jane still lived there, even though she thought that they were separated. Um, and I don't know if she particularly wanted to participate in this threesome, but she she went along with it. And then they took a shower and they got ready to go to bed for the night. And Bob cuddled with the woman on the bed and ordered Rachel to sleep on the floor. Which is just so terrible. So she said, I was really upset. I got up in the middle of the night and got dressed and went downstairs and started to leave while they were asleep. I would have had to walk home, but I couldn't remember where his house was in relationship to my apartment. Rachel returned to Jane and Bob's bedroom and spent the night on the floor. The three went to breakfast the next morning, and after the woman departed, Rachel told Bob she didn't appreciate having to lie on the carpet while he snuggled with another woman. It's also, like, not a small bed. It's like a king-size bed. There's no way he he could have made room for her, you know? Yeah. We had a conversation after that about what had happened that night and how upset I was by being there, and he promised he wouldn't do that again. He always seemed to be able to say exactly the right thing to suck me back in. Ugh. 
So Rachel did get one thing that she wanted, though. Bob and Rachel found a house in Gross Point to move into with financial help from his mother, according to Bob. I mean, his mom had no idea what she was giving him money for at this point, you know? She did not know he was having another relationship. The closing date was set for January 27th, 2012. The only problem was that Jane had yet to be informed that her husband was moving in with his girlfriend. Oh, my God. Bob decided at this point, rather than ask his mother for more money and face financial ruin by divorcing Jane, he could just bump her off to inherit her $800,000 401k. Two birds, one evil scummy stone. He began to put out inquiries for who might be persuaded to kill for some money. While he was interviewing Hitman, Bob was also keeping busy over the 2011 holiday season, attending Rachel's daughter's New Year's Eve wedding in South Carolina, and building an online courtship with a potential second slave located in Bend, Oregon, named Janet Lehman. Master Girl 43 was her screen name on alt.com where she connected with Bob as Master Bob. After a few exchanges, Bob insisted she change her screen name to Master Slave 4B. She described her burgeoning relationship with Bob to Hunter and Rosenthal in the book as follows. So these are the messages that they exchanged at the beginning. And Bob also calls Rachel Bella. She's supposed to be Bob's Bella. Okay. In a message exchange, Bob detailed his plans to Janet. Bob, between you and Bella, I know that I will be taking care of you both. You'll have your time with me and both together and separately. Janet, I understand, sir. Good girl. I'm glad you're mine. I'm in serious like with you. Lol. You. Janet, thank you, sir. Bob, be well and know that I am pleased. Thank you, sir. Well, know several things. I am a good judge of character. Your slavehood and service to me is valued. Plus, I think you're cute as well. Sleep well with thoughts of your master. Thank you, sir. Janice said Bob told her he wanted to be living in a new house with Rachel and another submissive woman by May 2012. He said he's tired of living a fake life and he wants to be true to himself and live his lifestyle. He had also given his family the sobering news. He told me that he told them it would be his last holidays with them and he's moving on and they just have to deal with it. He said that his daughter in particular was very upset and that his wife wasn't very happy about it either. Janet recalled Bob often spoke with vitriol when referring to Jane. He never used her name and it was usually with scorn. It was her or the ex-wife. Bob laid out what Janet's duties would be if she moved in with him and Rachel. He said, My slave Bella helps me out with my work and such. If you come and grow with us, you will still work and help with my ventures. Such a lazy POS. Just before Christmas 2011, Bob sent Janet a package meant to woo her. It was a Christmas gift that contained a $25 gift card to the Olive Garden and a dirty t-shirt that he had slept in for about a week. He wanted me to sleep in it so I could feel him. He sent me a small strand of leather to be worn around my wrist that signified that he owned me. Oh. Janet- <laughs> this is the worst Christmas present I've ever That's like heard. literally horrible. Like horrible. just get like just get her a cute pair of like new leather handcuffs or something. Like you don't anything. Need to- a gift certificate to Olive Garden. Here is my sweaty t-shirt and some endless pasta. He's like bottomless. Uh, what are they? Bottomless breadsticks. <laughs> Sticks. Yes. Because my stick doesn't work. 
They're a lot um, harder than what you're going to get from me. <laughs> Janet found a letter was inside the box explaining the significance of the leather strand. Slave J, this is from Bob. It is my hope and wish you have a wonderful Christmas. The gift is a strand of leather that's a symbol of my ownership of you. You are to wear it wrapped around your left wrist. You are not to wear it around your neck until I am there to place it there myself, calling you as mine. Know you are mine, slave, and serve me wonderfully. Master Bob, a second letter in the package explained the gross t-shirt. My slave, Jay, this is my shirt that I have worn next to my body for three days. It has my scent, and it is sent to you to sleep in and keep near you. When I come to see you, I will replace it with another one. You are mine, and this is so you will feel me. I remain Master Bob, your master and man. There was no note explaining the Olive Garden certificate. (laughs) And she hasn't met him yet? No, they're just strangers on the internet. I would be like, I'm going to look for a different master. Like, just get, like, send her Marquis de Sade. Like, yes, anything. Sexy literature. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. So somehow this must have worked, though, because Janet and Bob made plans to see each other over the weekend of January 10th to see how their chemistry would play out in person. Let's just say it proved to be a pretty big disappointment for Janet. Oh, my God. (laughs) So this is from Janet's account of what happened when they met. Janet met Bob at the airport, and on the way to her apartment, they stopped at a farmer's supply store where Bob purchased a cow whip and two strands of coarse rope. I thought I was getting into some light bondage and a little whipping, Janet said. Janet brought Bob into her home, and it wasn't long before he made his move. But it wasn't what she expected. He was standing behind me. He wrapped his hands around my neck and made me pass out cold. When, yeah, that's a dirty first move, it's dude. Not sexy. No. When Janet came to, Bob told her, well, little girl, you should have told me you were getting bad. I would have stopped. I could hurt you. Bob began whipping Janet far harder than she'd anticipated. I wasn't expecting what I got. I got a really good beating that left marks for three months. I got thrashed. <gasps> hmm That is not BDSM. That's fucking abuse. That is. The and she also, she was new to this scene. She, like, had no idea how it worked. So he was uh, supposed to be the one to, like, usher her in and help her learn her boundaries. Yeah, that is boundaries. not, that is not, that is not, not, not what that is. Yep. She said, with him being the dominant one, it was his responsibility to clear with me what he was doing. And beating me half to death with that thing wasn't what I wanted. I nearly passed out. It was awful. I didn't know at all what I was getting into. Janet was in for another surprise. I thought when he texted me, you will feel my power and strength, he was talking about sex. But he had an erectile dysfunction issue that he'd failed to disclose. To disclose. Oops. <laughs> was that actually Freudian? That was actually Freudian. I did not mean that. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, my God. But also, why not tell her? Like, plenty of women would be, like, fine with it. Like, But it's when it comes as a surprise that you're not getting dick, you're getting a strap on, that's not good. No. I was surprised his appendage didn't work. He said he thinks it has to do with his weight. That gross old bag of potatoes. Which also, again, we love, I love a a husky man. This is not about that. No. It's gross. (laughs) 
Oh my god, dying. Bob had packed a couple strap-on dildos to use in lieu of his flaccid penis, Janet said. I have no idea why he brought more than one strap-on. <laughs> also, he didn't bring his own like whips and like chains and ropes and stuff because they had to stop at a farm supply store, but he had a bag full of dildos. He's got to have his dick at all times, you know? I'd be ready to go. Yeah. Bob's visit was a disappointment. I was just trying to figure out how to make nice and live through it. I was just trying to figure out what the hell I'd gotten into and how to get out of it. Janet may have been skeptical of a relationship developing, but Bob called Rachel from Janet's apartment bearing good news, Rachel stated. He thought the meeting was going well between the two of them. He thought she might work out, but she would have to meet me to see if we got along. During the visit, Janet overheard Bob having a heated telephone conversations with someone he later identified as a handyman. I was making breakfast. He called somebody and said, I want this done. I want it done this weekend. What the fuck is wrong with you? I want it done before I get home. Janet drove Bob to the airport and he flew back to Michigan. A few days later, she said Bob phoned her with an unusual request. He called me and made idle chit-chat. Then he called back and asked me if I knew anyone who would rough someone up for money. I asked him why. He said that he had a handyman that was trying to extort money from him, a previous uh, tenant. Mm-hmm. I uh, advised him to report it to the police, and he said, let's just keep that between us. So the handyman ended up being a mentally impaired first and only one-time hitman named Joe Gens, whom Bob hired to kill Jane. Gens had been introduced to Bob through a furniture store owner named Steve Thibodeau. Joe was broke and destitute, being evicted and desperate for money when he met the conniving Bob Bashara. He's six feet four, 225 pounds, and has an IQ estimated between 69 and 72. So the lower number, the 69, qualifies Joe as severely intellectually disabled and classified him as technically suffering from mild mental retardation. Oh, no. Yeah. Poor Joe had lots and lots of issues. He was also blind in his left eye as the result of a childhood stroke. He had been diagnosed with a number of personality disorders, including bipolar, intermittent explosive personality disorder, and an an organic mood disorder. One of his friends described him as severely mentally challenged. He's physically extremely strong, but easily manipulated. He always tries to get people to accept him. Oh, it's like the the kid from Of Mice and Men. Like yeah. Like strong kid. Exactly. And, like- and so easily like used because he's just looking for friendship, you know? I know. That's a – Big dude. It's a big dude. 6'4", 225 pounds. Gens's life was pretty, pretty hard. He had bounced around for most of his life, taking odd jobs like shoveling asphalt, washing dishes, and delivering pizzas. He worked with the Merchant Marines for a few years. One of his childhood friends said, like, all the kids, like, would beat him up and get him to do stuff for, like, a dime and, like, all make fun of him and stuff. It was just really cruel stuff. His first wife, Lori Van Meter, said that he never hurt or threatened her during the time the couple lived in Maryland in the early 1990s. She said he was quiet. We would argue, but there was never any threats or violence. 
Gentz's next marriage to Donna Lowry in 2000 was much more acrimonious, court records show. The couple had a daughter who, like Gentz, was developmentally disabled. Five months after the girl was born, Gentz and Lowry divorced. After the split, they each filed personal protective orders against each other. Lowry claimed in her PPO that Gentz had threatened to shoot her. In his order, Gentz claimed his wife had choked him, threw a baseball bat at him, and broke three fishing poles over his head. This is a bad, bad relationship. A Macomb County family court judge deemed Lowry an unfit mother and awarded custody of their daughter to Gentz, but that didn't last long. Yeah, this poor kiddo. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services began taking steps to terminate Gentz's parental rights, claiming in court documents he neglected her by dropping her off at the homes of his spotty relatives and housing her in deplorable living conditions. Oh, in Ju- God. This, I know, this poor little girl. In July 2009, a caseworker from Michigan Child Protective Services wrote a report which resulted in Gens's parental rights being revoked. The worker visited the child in Gens's home and found the house to be filthy. The bathtub was black and moldy. The girl's bedroom was littered with trash, and the family dog had an untreated mouth injury, causing it, causing it to bleed throughout the house. The blood wasn't cleaned up, the worker noted. Gens's daughter was placed in foster care. How old was she at that time? Um, I think she was still a little girl. She was probably nine or under because they got married in 2000. Man, so like – but we always talk about how it's so difficult for the child not to go with the mother. Like she had to have been – The mother had to be wild. a nightmare if yeah. – if- you know, a developmentally disabled man who is chronically out of work, you know, and homeless, it gets custody, you know. Oh, so two years after they revoked um, his custodianship in May 2011, his ability to have unsupervised visits with his daughter was also revoked by the court. So like now he he can't even have unsupervised visits because he was diagnosed with an impulse disorder and the state psychologist determined he clearly did not have the cognitive capacity, behavioral controls, or judgment to be able to safely and independently parent her. So he was fighting really, really hard to fight that and regain custody but he didn't have enough money to keep a roof over his head let alone pay a lawyer so by the time Gens crossed paths with Bob he was super desperate desperado he was so desperado and Bob was for different reasons um Bob didn't waste time he approached Gens with his deadly proposition about a month after they'd met Bob said I'll give you five grand to knock out my wife, kill her, Gens stated during court testimony. First, I thought he was joking. I'm like, okay, Bob, whatever. I thought he was bullshitting. It doesn't make sense. Why would he want his wife dead? Gens quickly realized that Bob wasn't kidding. I'm like, this guy's serious. He wants his wife taken out. He wanted it to look like an accident. This guy's for real. So Gens told a lot of people about the hit. He even was trying to like subcontract it out to people, like being like, I don't really want to kill this woman. Would you do it if I gave you, you know, like three quarters of the money? And people were like, absolutely not. And most of the people didn't really take him seriously. They didn't think that it was a real offer or that it was actually going to happen. They thought it was just like he like still drank a lot, you know, like they just were like, this is just Joe being Joe. But he did like after this 
whole thing came to light, a bunch of people were like, oh, shit, I should have taken that seriously because he told like 10 people about this. Wow. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Jane told her daughter and close friends that she had prayed and thought on it. And in the 2012 New Year, she was determined to recommit to Bob in their marriage and make it work. Jane even began to set up a romantic vacation to the Dominican Republic to help their bond re-solidify. So, sadly, no vacations or rebuilding would occur. Unbeknownst to Jane, her husband had effectively already signed her death warrant. Ugh, that's, like, so sad. Like, she would have definitely, I feel like because you've been together for so long. Yeah. They could they could have created. For another, almost 30 years, you know. Yeah, and they could have created another bond. Like, a, you know, a new marriage bond and reconnected emotionally and socially and had such a nice trip regardless of his ED, you know? Absolutely. And she was willing to work with that and overlook that. Like, she was w- willing to do anything. I mean, her daughter said, like, she's not a quitter. She's a fighter. She's somebody that fights for the things in her life and in her marriage. I mean, think about how fast she got that MBA, you know, working a full-time job and, and got her 401k and got her house. Like, she is somebody who's willing to work really, really hard for what she wants. But how do you work for a marriage where the other person is actively working against it? Ugh, it's terrible. So on January 24th, 2012, Jane woke up and went to work after making plans with Bob to go over their taxes that evening, which were, of course, a mess because of Bob. Bob made several calls to Gens, ensuring that he would be at the Bashara house at 6 p.m. and definitely no later. He called Rachel, who had just made arrangements with the electric company to turn on service for their new home starting on January 30th. Their closing was supposed to be in three days. Jane left work at 4 p.m. and chatted with her daughter Jessica on the way home. Gens fielded several more phone calls from Bob, increasingly desperate confirmations that he'd be there at 6 p.m. So this is Gens's account, which he later told in testimony of what happened when he arrived at the Bashara home on Middlesex that day. When I knocked on the door, Jane Bashara was in the kitchen with Bob. Then he let me in the side door of his house. I walked in. He points to the garage and says, okay, I got to go get her. So he had told Jane that Gens was a handyman that was helping them move stuff out of their garage. Okay. He comes back with her. That's when they got into an argument. She said, I want you to move these boxes. Get your shit out of the garage. She wanted the golf clubs to go to the Lockmore Country Club, and she wanted the boxes to go to the storage place. Next thing I know, he pulls a gun on me and says, shut her up. They were arguing still, and he says, do it now. Gens feared for his life as Bob cocked the hammer on his thirty-two caliber revolver. All I heard was click, he recalled. I looked down the barrel and I'm like, oh shit. And he says, take her out or I'm taking you out. Why don't you just shoot her, you fucking pussy? Exactly. Exactly what I was thinking. This this coward. What a piece of shit. He was standing behind the vehicle. I couldn't go nowhere. The garage door was shut. There was only three of us in that garage except for God. I hit her in the back of the neck. I knock her down. She goes, Bob, and Bob says, choke her. We struggle. She doesn't get knocked out. She was more like, what are you doing, Bob? Help me, Bob, which is just so painful and sad to think about the person that you have loved, that you've had children with, that you've lived with for nearly 30 years, 
doing this to you. It's just, it's disgusting. And Bob says, take care of her. So I went, bam. I took her neck out with my boot. I broke her neck. With my boot? He stomped on her neck until it broke. Gens said Bob ordered him to make sure Jane was dead. Gens complied, and Bob told him to put her body into the SUV. Ugh, and this part is just so frustrating. So I went to pick her up. Her shirt opened up. I didn't see a bra. I seen tits. Bob goes over there and says, I'm sorry, baby. Then he pulls her shirt down. We loaded her up into the vehicle. He had the head and I had her feet. We put her in the backseat of the Mercedes. So I honestly, Bob killed her. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's what this whole thing is about. And it's like, it's like you think that you're going to like somehow get away with it because you threatened another guy that you were going to kill to kill her, but you both lifted her into the car. Like, this is just so ridiculous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's just, it's, it's a lot of what I think, I think we covered this in the last play in the one of our cases before. Oh, you know what I think it was? I think it was Pamela Smart where some sociopaths feel like they can get deniability if they don't actually do the act, even though they're doing the killing. I mean, he would have been so much better off doing it on his own. Well, yeah, you involve another person, a person that he had no relationship with before. I mean, they only knew each other for a handful of months before he this happened. So, of course, you know, Joe is going to talk at some point, you know? Yeah, this is just, I mean, it's beyond stupid. Then he threatened me. He goes, if you ever say anything, I will kill you and you will be followed. After we loaded up her body, he took her purse and everything and started throwing it around the vehicle. He took all the contents, her wallet, and just threw it in the vehicle. He emptied out her purse, her cell phone, and everything. As Gens sat in the SUV, Bob told him, don't fuck up, before reiterating his promise to pay him for the murder. He goes, you'll get a ring, you'll get 10 grand, and you'll get a Cadillac. I'll pay you. Don't worry about it. I'll catch up with you later. So he hadn't even paid him for this. Oh, my God. This poor woman. Yeah. So Gens took the Mercedes to be dumped while Bob went immediately to the bar at the Hard Luck Lounge where he could be seen on the security camera taking a broom and sweeping up the back alley. About 30 minutes after that, he re-entered the bar and ordered a rum and coke. He then called a friend who came to join him for happy hour and thus established his alibi. So he left as soon as Gens left. They both just peeled out. Meanwhile, Gens dumped the Mercedes in an alley where it would eventually be found just about 12 hours later by our tow truck driver from the beginning. He walked a mile and a half to a McDonald's there where he was captured on camera catching a bus. And he eventually stopped in a liquor store to buy a pack of smokes and then on to one of his regular watering holes, a place called My Dad's Bar where he drank to forget what he had just done. Ugh. This guy was also very easily manipulated. I mean, Bob took full advantage of this man's developmental disability yeah. and his his terrible situation in life, you know? So Bob drove home after being at the bar and texted a few friends of Jane's as well as calling their daughter at 9 p.m., pretending she hadn't arrived home and that he was worried. He was also calling and leaving messages on Jane's cell phone to make it look like he was concerned. His next move was to call the Gross Point Park Public Safety Department, and this is exactly what he said. 
when dispatcher Jody East answered the call, he said, my name is Bob Bashara. I live on Middlesex. I don't want to overreact. And maybe this is too soon to call, but my wife is not around and she's not answering her cell phone. It's been three hours since I've been home and she's not here. Her car and her phone and her purse are gone. And I'm just a little concerned. East asked Bob whether Jane had anything planned that night. Nothing on the calendar, Bob replied. Nothing that I know of. So what do you need the sergeant for, East asked. I just wanted to ask what the procedure is as far as a missing person. Well, I think I can explain that to you. Bob's tone changed. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to minimize your role. East started to ask. A, it's because she's a woman. I mean, this guy. Ugh. So East gross. Started, yeah. <laughs> So gross. It's when we have the woman killers and we're like, this bitch. Yeah. We can do that for him too. This bitch. Seriously. <laughs> a bitch can be a man or a woman. 100%. <laughs> um, E started to ask a question, but Bob cut her off. Here's the deal. We talked about working in the office to do the taxes and she called me at 4.30 and said she was on her way home. I said, great. I probably won't be home until 7.30, a quarter to 8, because I own some rentals and I had some work to do over at my Mac building. And I got home at about 10 to 8 and she's not here. Bob rambled on, barely stopping to breathe. Now, I know she's been home because her backpack that she uses for work with her computer and her ID that gets her into the building is up there on her jewelry box. But she, her car, and purse are gone. I called all of her good friends to see if she was visiting someone. I called her brother. I called both of our kids to say, hey, did you hear about mom? I don't want to panic anyone, but at this point, it's been three hours, Bob added. Then he reiterated that he'd been working at the Hard Luck Lounge, providing specific times covering his whereabouts. East told Bob she would send out a lean law enforcement information network message to all area police departments. We'll see if we hear anything in the next hour or so. If not, I'll send an officer. Thank you, officer, Bob replied. And again, I didn't mean to offend you. So two of Jane's friends immediately came over and they very quickly noticed that things in the house weren't right. First of all was that Jane's dog was acting strangely. Um, One of her friends said, I was expecting Lance, their dog, to come up and greet us because the dog was always all over anyone who came into the house. But that didn't happen. And Christina told me later that Bob, after that, put down the otherwise completely healthy dog, like euthanized it, because the dog started acting really weird and therefore, quote, as Christina said, exposing his ass. Yep. I, that like totally makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Speaking and that was of, like a little bitch thing to do. It's a little bitch thing to do because the dog knows what you did. You're going to kill an otherwise healthy dog. Like not even like give it to his shelter. You're going to murder it. Yep. Ugh, he is a sick fuck and he's pathetic. Bob told Rachel that Jane was missing and to not contact him as well as for Rachel to tell Janet not to contact him anymore. He said he'd be in touch when he could. Over the next few weeks, he would use his mother's cell phone to make surreptitious calls to both of them. Oh, my God. (laughs) Using mommy's cell phone. Using mommy's cell phone to call my slaves. I know. (laughs) 
So when Jane's body is discovered in the SUV, the investigation takes off in full swing, and the police are, of course, immediately suspicious of Bob. Duh. Yeah, and Bob was not doing himself any favors. He tried to get Rachel to attend a memorial gathering at their home for Jane, which is so disgusting. Rachel thoughtfully declined, but he told her, he was like, there's going to be a ton of people. Like, not everybody knows everybody. Nobody will know. You can just say, like, you're a friend from work. It's like, no, Jane will have plenty of friends from work who are at this. Like, they're going to know Rachel doesn't work with them. The balls. That is, like, so twisted. It's so twisted. So Rachel thankfully said no. Um, He also, only days after the murder, called a friend from Jane's work and asked her if they could expedite the insurance money from Jane's company policy. He was saying that the kids needed the money. Wow. Wow. Because he was trying to – he didn't have enough money for the down payment for the closing. So he was trying to get the money so he could buy the house for him and Rachel. Oof. Two days after the murder, Bob dropped off a check for Gents at a Goodwill-type store that he sometimes worked at. Joe asked a liquor store owner if he could cash the check for $452 for him. The store owner complied, but the check later bounced. For $400? For $450, his murder check bounced. He should have just killed himself. I know. It would have made a lot of people a lot happier. Oh, God. Like, how embarrassing. He just thinks he's smarter and better and bigger than everybody else, and he's the tiniest man in the room. Oh, God. The cops brought Bob in for some following interviews in which he vehemently denied any affairs, but he did try to throw Jane under the bus for occasionally smoking marijuana. Ah! Even... Yeah, occasionally smoking marijuana. Come on. He even – so the police were like, well, okay, so you think that maybe she was in Detroit to score drugs? And he's like, yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to throw her under the bus or anything, but she smoked a lot of weed, so maybe that's why she was there. Really, yeah, Bob? Because there's a lot of, like, real intense crime with dealing <laughs> weed to suburban <laughs> housewives. <laughs> I know. It's so ridiculous. Meanwhile, Bob was also playing the grieving widower to the media, and it finally dawned on Rachel that she'd been taken in by a dangerous con man. She told the authors of the book, Hunter and Rosenthal, the following. I realized he was still married, that he strung me along, she said. I still believed we were on track. He was still a divorce man. We were still going to be together, but we had just had this horrible tragedy. Then I see the interviews on TV and he's talking about how he's just lost his wife. When the news people are referring to someone as your wife, it it could be a mistake. But when you're being interviewed in person and you keep calling her your wife, that's not a mistake. At that point, I knew he was married and everything had all been a lie. That's when I broke up with him and changed my locks and told him to stop contacting me. Rachel also told Bob that she planned to go to the police to let him know of her involvement with him, and he didn't react to that. So Bob was in trouble. In response, he tried to get on the good side of the media, granting several interviews. Christina said that it was all over the news, and everyone in the points was totally shook. 
This was a small community where the usual newspaper headline read, like, purse snatcher still at large, she said. People immediately noticed Bob's odd behavior, such as dabbing bone-dry eyes with a handkerchief to make it look as though he were crying, and using his mother or daughter as a human shield when interviewed. Christina wrote, the news was on constantly in my house and I watched all of the videos of him just staring longingly out the window as the news cameras stood outside his house. There's this one video of him looking sad at the news camera and then slowly closing the curtains, that dramatic fuck. <laughs> oh, my That's God. what she wrote. <laughs> I love Christina. The main thing that gets me, she said, is the way that he held his family in front of him during all the news interviews. Everyone knew that he was using them to gain sympathy. Ew. Yeah, she sent some pictures that I'll send to you so we can use on the Instagram of like he literally like was holding his mother in front of him like, look, I'm a good guy. Look at my elderly mother. Ugh, and my daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, sympathy would be in short supply for Master Bob after he tremendously failed his polygraph test, employed a defense attorney <laughs> – <laughs> and then the cops seized his computers, which would, of course, reveal his secret double life on FetLife and Alt.com. So the media was about to explode with sex-fueled glee. This is exactly the type of story they want, you know? Yeah. Feeling the heat as Rachel also came forward to the police and the walls were closing in on him, Bob made the disastrous decision to implicate Joe Gens. He was like, you know, I think maybe my handyman did it. Like he pulled a Pleasant Valley and they had no idea Joe Gens wasn't even on their radar and he's the one who brought him into the investigation. Oh my God. So dumb. Don't give the cops the name of your hitman. Wow. <laughs> so stupid. But I think it was exactly the same situation as that Pleasant Valley case where he was feeling the heat and he just totally crumbled under pressure. And he's like, uh, what about my handyman doing it? Maybe he did it. Oh, my God. Yep. So Gens actually – kind of dummied up he originally managed to stonewall the police but eventually he came clean about the murder to his friend steve who convinced him to turn himself in and try to get a plea deal which is good advice steve yep after gens's name and profession as a handyman were revealed in the media janet in oregon recalled that conversation he had had at her house where he was screaming at a handyman to quote get the job done so, of course, chills ran up her spine. She called the police back in Michigan, and it looks like all of Master Bob's so-called slaves were turning on him. So good. So good. The prosecutor's office appointed a defense attorney for Joe Gens, which was highly unusual for the prosecutors to appoint them one. But it seemed to indicate that they wanted to make a deal. And I think it was also a prudent move given his intellectual disabilities to make yeah. sure that he was completely covered and they were on the up and up during all parts of it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Based on Gens's interview, the police were granted a search warrant for the garage because he revealed that's where he had killed Jane. And new luminol evidence showed blood. Bob's attorney argued that the blood could have come from a coyote killing a rabbit which is ridiculous it's, or, it's, it's mice it's mice the old it's mice trick 
Uh, or even someone who contaminated the scene at Jane's memorial gathering. He also told the press that Jane's injuries appeared defensive because she did have a number of broken fingernails from fighting off Joe. Yep. And he was like, well, Bob doesn't have a scratch on him. So how do you say that happened? Um, because he got somebody else to kill her dingaling. Oh, my God. Well, Bob's attorney was spinning that shit to the local media and the prosecutors were making deals with Joe Gens, Bob was going on Good Morning America to proclaim his innocence. While on the show, he and his attorney told America that Jane and Bob had an open marriage. Jane's family, the Engelbrechts, were horrified by this and issued their own statement, which read... After recent comments made to the media about Jane, our family feels compelled to respond. It is well known in our family that Bob and Jane did not have a perfect marriage. Over the last several years, our family has observed an obvious change in Bob and Jane's relationship. We as a family are certain that Jane would have chosen to end her marriage rather than participate in an open marriage. We are unaware of any other man in Jane's life and sincerely believe we would have known about any such person due to our close relationship with our sister and daughter. We are confident that anyone who knows Jane would agree that she held herself to the highest ideals of honesty, loyalty, ethics, and morals. Any comments made to the contrary should be met with disbelief. And they went on to basically lambaste uh, Bob for putting his children in this position. And they were like, please don't reach out to our elderly parents as this is an obviously extremely distressing time, you know? Wow. Ugh. So the media also found and latched on to the 1995 police report with the molestation accusation, which was readily available thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, to reiterate just how absolutely disgusting and terrible Bob is. According to the report, the girl said Bob had picked her up and took her to the spare bedroom, closing and locking the door behind them. Bob, clad only in a bathrobe, put her over his lap, opened his robe, and forced her hand between his legs. Then the girl went on. He spanked her for no reason. When the girl protested, Bob insisted she liked the punishment. An investigator who interviewed the girl wrote, the victim kept struggling and saying that she did not like the spanking. Bob kept telling her over and over again, yes, you do. Gross. Ugh, so disgusting. This is also like, you know, a lot of times murderers – practice killing on like little children or elderly people because yeah. they're just easier targets to begin with you know yeah, 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 yeah. and it's totally makes sense to me that this is how we started yeah mm. with this new information the media was out for blood and public opinion of bob was not so great as you can imagine gens was officially arrested for the murder of jane bashara on march 2nd due to dna evidence that was matched from the scene and of course his confession well, outwardly, Bob's attorney spun this as good news. An arrest had been made and it wasn't Bob. Big Bob knew his house of cards was crumbling. He began to reach out obsessively to his former lover, slave, and confidant, Rachel, but she wasn't having it anymore. On April 26, Rachel was forced to file a personal protection order against Bob. Rachel wrote, the fact that he refuses to listen to my pleas for him to leave me alone, make me intimidated by him and feel threatened and frightened that he will escalate his behavior if he becomes angry. More importantly, the fact that his wife was found strangled terrifies me because I think it could happen to me. 
which makes sense. I mean, even though he wasn't the one who did the the actual strangling, there was a lot of women he strangled to unconsciousness, you know? Yep. Jane's mother actually filed a protective order against Bob as well shortly after Bob had appeared on Dateline once again suggesting that Jane had been down with this open marriage lifestyle and maybe had even had her own affairs. After Jane's mother called requesting he stop dragging her daughter's name through the mud, Bob began calling incessantly protesting his innocence and the family felt a restraining order was necessary. Whoa. Uh huh. As the relationships with the Engelbrechts deteriorated, Bob tried to essentially extort them by refusing to give them Jane's ashes unless they publicly supported him in the media. That might be the worst thing that I've heard since we started recording this podcast. I mean, it's beyond despicable. Yeah. Withholding their beloved beloved's remains yeah to make matters worse he didn't want them to be able to get them and his children would have had access to the house to get the remains and give them to their grandparents so he gave them to one of his bdsm friends so he could hide them from his entire family and that person stored them in a sex dungeon next to sex toys and bdsm paraphernalia Wow. Just so disrespectful. The family wouldn't get possession of Jane's remains for months. So Bob is real busy during this period because when he's not extorting his in-laws or harassing his ex-slaves or lying to news cameras, he's apparently ordering a hit on his hitman. Oh, you called it when you said he's like father of the year. Yep. Wow. (laughs) This moron went back to the furniture store owner, Steve Thibodeau, who had connected him with Gens, and asked him to connect him with a hitman who would now take Joe Gens out. He said that to the guy? To the guy. So Thibodeau introduced him to Joe Gens. Now he goes back to Thibodeau and is like, hey, you know that hitman that you got me? So it kind of worked out, kind of didn't. Now I need to kill him. So can you find me another hitman to take out the hitman? Apparently he didn't say that the hit had worked or anything. He's, he like tried to play it off like Joe a- had basically gone crazy or something and he needed to shut him up. Wow. But still, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So Thibodeau obviously was already like, oh, shit, I am involved in this because I introduced him. So he was like, I'm not getting myself into any further trouble. And he immediately turned snitch for the police. And he's like, I'll wear a wire. I'll do anything. I just don't want to get some accessory to murder charge, you know? So on June 25th, Bob paid Thibodeau a $2,000 down payment to kill Gens in jail. He like basically Thibodeau acted like he was going to give it to somebody else to do. Directly after paying the money for the hit, he went to lunch and a walk in the park with his first slave and former lover, Vanita Porter, where he complained about lack of support and then grossly propositioned her, of course. Vanita recounted the date to Hunter and Rosenthal here. So Porter and Bob sat on a picnic bench and chatted. He said that he really did love Rachel and that she had turned on him. He said he couldn't reach her and that she was saying things that seemed to upset him. He talked about Jessica. He said the kids were upset. He told me Jess was upset. Rob was upset. 
They did not wish to talk to him at the moment, but he felt like in about a year, Jessica would hopefully calm down. We went for a walk around the perimeter of the park, Porter went on. He pulled me in the bushes where no one could see us. He said that I was too beautiful a woman to not be having sex. What? Yeah. And he grabbed me by the neck, lifted me by my chin off my toes, and he kissed me very, very thoroughly. He told me that I was a beautiful woman, and he kissed me. I kept my hand on my box cutter in my pocket, and I hoped that I was going to live. He asked me if I would come back to his house and stay with him. He asked me to come that afternoon. He said we didn't have much time, that I had to make a decision. I said, Bob, that's crazy. The prosecutors know how I stayed at the house before. Have you lost your mind? He said that he needed to feel me, that we didn't have much time and we needed to try and hurry. Like, I think he knows he's going to jail and he's mm-hmm. trying to have some sex before he goes. The last one in. Yeah. Or not in, as it may be. <laughs> When we came out of the bushes, there were two gentlemen in the park I was hoping were detectives, Porter said. We walked past them quickly and went back to the car. He hugged me and told me to hurry and said again we didn't have much time. Then he got in his car and he drove away and he got arrested. Yay! (laughs) Finally. Finally. So directly after this date, Bob was arrested for conspiracy to kill Gens in jail. So to make matters worse for Bob, he had vehemently denied even owning a gun. So he was claiming that this part of Joe Kent's account of being held at gunpoint was total fiction because he didn't have a gun. Well, lo and behold, Bob's mother found a 32 caliber revolver in a safe deposit box, exactly the same make and model that Joe Gens claimed he had had. Poor Nancy turned the gun in and that was the like very last supporter of Bob, you know. Joe Gens got a plea deal for 17 to 28 years in prison in exchange for testifying against Bob. And Bob in turn copped his own plea on the charge of solicitation to commit murder. And Bob in turn copped his own plea on the charge of solicitation to commit murder, which he got a nice fat almost 20 years for. It was like six to 20 years for Master Bob, which is actually a pretty good deal because the charge can carry up to life in prison in Michigan. After the sentencing, Jane's sister, Julie, made it very clear where the family stood. As far as both men went, she said that she was glad that, you know, Gens was going to pay for what he had done, but that was not the one they wanted. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, she's like, we need the full truth to come out and everyone who's involved in the murder to have to pay for it. So she's like, we want another trial. So the Engelbrechts would get their day in court as a hearing was conducted in September to determine if Bob would be going to trial for the murder of his wife. Even in a courtroom. So this is the hearing before the official trial. Bob proved to be a disgusting, manipulative pig. During part of Rachel's testimony, Bob tapped his heart while he stared meaningfully at her. He then licked his lips and simulated sucking on the stem of his glasses. Oh my God, that's disgusting. In the courtroom. Are you insane? Oh. Oh. Yes. Yes, the judge noticed this behavior and determined that Bob was certainly going to trial for murder, even suggesting the hearing could have been skipped and gone straight to trial. At the conclusion, Judge King also chastised Bob for his lewd behavior, 
saying there's a lesson to be learned from the defendant's behavior this court has observed, holding his heart, crying tears, even though his eyes were as dry as sandpaper, and licking his tongue out when witness Gillette was on the stand. And this is the judge. And it wasn't a simple licking of the lips. He was going to town with his lips. Ew. The real shame of it. Oh, it's so gross. The real shame of it all is that I would submit Mrs. Bashara probably really trusted him in giving her hand in marriage to him. He was supposed to protect her. There's supposed to be trust in a relationship. When King slammed his gavel, it became official. Bob would stand trial for Jane's murder. It would become one of the most eagerly anticipated trials in Detroit history. The trial finally began in October of 2014, nearly three years since Bob had forced Joe Gens to brutally stomp the life out of his wife. The trial, the trial ended up being a complete media circus. Most of the early trial focused on Bob's involvement in the BDSM community as the prosecution's case was that Bob was motivated to kill Jane so he would have the funds and freedom to explore the BDSM master and slave polyamorous lifestyle daily. So, as you can imagine, that led to some rather colorful testimony. Yeah, well, I hope that they talk about how he's just violent and he's not an actual master. Well, the the judge had so many questions. Like, they really wanted to understand the landscape yeah, of the community. And a lot of people were like, this is not indicative of what the lifestyle is about. Good. Good, good, good. Rachel was forced to testify about Bob's erectile dysfunction, telling a packed courtroom that they could only achieve intimacy through sex toys and oral sex. Janet even expounded on this, saying the following – Janet mentioned Bob had ED, and Evans asked her to clarify what that meant. His appendage didn't work. Evans cocked her head. His appendage? The chairman of the board didn't show up for work, Janet said, before glancing at the defendant. my God. (laughs) Line of the show. The chairman of the board didn't show up for work. Wow. I need to write that one down. That (laughs) one. So good. The chairman of the board didn't show up to work. And then she looked at him directly and said, sorry, Bob. (laughs) Gotta love Janet. Jurors laughed up their sleeves as Bob squirmed. Under cross-examination, McCarthy asked Janet why she told investigators she and Bob had sex when he was unable to perform. It wasn't sex, she said. Mr. Bashara had an ED issue that he'd failed to disclose. So he brought with him a couple of strap-ons. Janet hung her head. What are strap-ons, Evans asked. The witness answered the judge's questions. (laughs) Oh, God. It's so wild to me that people in 2012 still don't know what this stuff is. I know. I know. I don't know... I don't know. I don't know why they don't know. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, it's, it's fine. I'm not like judging. I just think it's shocking with how much pop culture and like sex and I, I don't know. It just, it seems like that, that is out there in the world. It just seems shocking. Well, I guess if you're like older and you're married and settled down and maybe that's not your type of pop culture entertainment, maybe you wouldn't come across it. Or maybe the judge just was worried that some of the jurors might not know and wanted to – Yeah, wanted to make sure that it's all explained. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. If, if you know someone can't get it up and they're a dude and they strap something on. I you... mean, it would seem pretty obvious. I mean, I think you could context clues. But yeah. my like my grandmother wouldn't know. Would your grandmother know if you said strap on what that meant? No. No. <laughs> so I don't know what the jury was comprised of. <laughs> like if it's like there's a couple little old ladies on the jury, maybe the judge felt like we got to make sure everybody knows the facts of the case here. Everyone clear on what a strap on is? Everyone? <laughs> they get out a diagram. They bring them in for evidence. Does anyone need any clarification? They should have brought them in as evidence. That would have been amazing. Oh my God. Absolutely. I also, I, I kind of love that this guy who got off on like dominating and humiliating women is just totally getting owned this whole trial. I, I think you would say that the Karma Jizz Fairy made a visit, wouldn't you, Andy? Yeah, I think the, <laughs> oh, I was going to say it. And then I remembered that it was just like this. It's like, <laughs> It's like floppy fish jizz. It's like it's kind of more like the last few sprinkles out of a garden hose that's been turned off. It's turned off, but you gotta like let it run out so it doesn't. Yeah, so you gotta shake it. (laughs) Oh my god! So this trial was wild. Um, next up was Steve Thibodeau, the furniture store owner who had worn the wire that helped convict Bob. Naturally, the judge and the prosecution in the courtroom wanted to hear the wiretaps. Um, so assistant prosecutor Robert Moran then asked the judge for permission to play only a relevant bit of another portion of audio from Thibodeau's wire, but was denied. Fairness dictates we play the whole thing, Judge Evans said. The recording made on June 25th, 2012, was 57 minutes long. So Thibodeau's up on the stand for this entire replaying. While it contained a short casual conversations between Bob and Thibodeau, most of the audio consisted of nothing useful. It started with scratchy noises that made jurors cringe, accentuated by loud thumps, and the sound of Thibodeau getting into his truck as he drove to Romeo, Michigan. During the ride, Thibodeau burped, grunted, whistled, listened briefly to a radio news report, and cooed to his dog, Mr. Doodles. Thibodeau had a television had a telephone conversation with someone in which he complained about his gallbladder in excruciating detail. <laughs> then, in response to something said on the other end of the receiver, Thibodeau replied, You're going to laugh so hard you'll bust a nut. Jurors were having trouble keeping straight faces. During this conversation, Thibodeau offered a conspiracy theory. You know who's really running Wall Street, don't you? It's Disney and Mickey Mouse. After the call ended, Thibodeau drove in silence for a few seconds before singing a line of the Banana Boat song and farting loudly. Ew. <laughs> Laughter filled the courtroom while Thibodeau slumped on the witness stand. When the audio finished, Judge Evans said, well, that was a complete waste of time. (laughs) Oh, my God. This trial. Circus. It was a total circus. And it wasn't all fun and games, however. Some of the most compelling evidence against Bob was the pattern of calls to Gents, which increased in frequency for three days up until the murder and followed the exact testimony of Gents, but directly contradicted Bob's own statements. 
Lorraine, Jane's mother, got a good dig in at Bob in her own testimony when she said, I don't know why Bob wanted a slave. He had one in Jane. She was the one who made the money and provided for the family. Yeah, she's not Snaps, mama. Snaps. (laughs) After eight weeks, 74 witnesses, and 460 exhibits, the trial finally concluded on December 10th of 2014. The jurors deliberated for less than three days and came back with guilty on all charges. So they had brought him up on conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, solicitation to commit murder, first-degree murder, witness intimidation, and obstruction of justice, and he was guilty on all of them. Wow. hmm You straight-boned, Bob. The judge sentenced Bob to life without the possibility of parole. I think that's our favorite. What do we call that, Andy? L WAP motherfucker. <laughs> L WAP alert. During sentencing, both Jane's mother and sister delivered scathing remarks, but I also particularly enjoyed what Judge Evans said to him. She said, You lived in two worlds light, your family, community, and friends, and darkness where your lies were your truth, and your truth was a lie. Evans added in a mocking tone, Master Bob, master of manipulation. You once said you were living the dream, but now you're experiencing a nightmare that only you created. The judge continued, I have no mercy for you. Today, there will be justice for Jane. Oh. Yeah. So then Bob, like, people who are sentenced get to say something in their own rebuttal. And usually this is the time when they're like, I say I'm sorry to the victims, blah, 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 you know. Then Bob tried to argue with the judge saying some BS about his 40 years of community service and comparing himself to Job from the Bible. You've got to be kidding me. No, the judge was like, okay, okay. She just cut him off. When you first said that, I thought you were going to say Job from um, Arrested Arrested Development. Development. (laughs) That would have been a lot better if he like became a really bad magician all of a sudden. (laughs) Um, No, the judge totally cut him off and was like, that's enough of what you have to say. You can sit down. Wow. He's such an asshat. So Bob attempted to appeal later trying to say that his attorneys did an insufficient job in his defense, but that was totally thrown out, and Bob spent the rest of his days behind bars. Bob ended up passing away this past August 18th of 2020, which I guess means one good thing came out of 2020. <laughs> Bye, Bob. Bye. Did he – what did he pass away of? He had um, liver issues. It was like a dialysis situation. And I think it was eventually some sort of liver failure. But many Gross Point residents and others worldwide who followed the case think that that fate was much too good for him and he should have spent decades rotting away in jail. I agree. Yeah. Christina said she screamed, God damn it, no, when she found out he died. (laughs) Um, Christina also wrote about Jane saying, I never met her and I'm honestly sad I didn't. She was even more loved and respected in the community than he was and for good reason. She was a great mom, sister, community activist, and all around amazing person. So here, here to that. And Jane definitely was a bright light 
and she completely lives on through her brilliant children who clearly got all of their mom because they're both super high achieving, successful adults now on separate coasts. Robert is an engineer at SpaceX, which is uh, Elon Musk's company. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Absolutely awesome. And Jessica is an investment banker in New York City. Okay, so cool. So cool. So obviously they inherited all of their mom's brains and hardworking attitude. And I I think that she would be super duper proud of them. For sure. For sure. So that is the sleazy, disgusting story of pathetic, gross worm Bob Bashara. Wow. What a fucking piece of work. Yeah, right. Scumbag alert. Uh, Well, thanks everyone out there for listening. You guys are decidedly not scumbags and we appreciate you so much. So if you have made it for this full over two hour episode and you still like us, please take a minute to give us a five star rating and perhaps even drop us a review. We really love them. And even more important, it, it helps us at this beginning of our podcast journey to have more people find us. Yeah, they they really are special. So if you want to give the gift that keeps on giving, give us a review and we'll send you a sticker. Yay. <laughs> and like I said, we'll keep you guys uh, updated on the merch situation, but we should have a big update in, in next week's episode. So in conclusion, this holiday season, don't give your lover a stanky undershirt and a $25 gift certificate to Olive Garden. Don't give that to anyone. And you know what? Kick it up to to 50 bucks. Let her buy a glass of wine with her dinner. It may not be the best idea to give your sociopathic son $300,000 in a few years. It's just not probably not going to end well. I don't think so. Don't do it. Don't do it at Christmas. Don't do it for Hanukkah. Don't do it any time of the year. Just just financially starve those sociopaths. Yeah. (laughs) And as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. So stay, so stay safe out there, kids. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.